Maggie Kirkpatrick holds a unique place in Australian entertainment. She created one of the most iconic characters in Australian drama television history and simultaneously evolved into one of the most accomplished and admired theatrical leading ladies. Maggie appeared as Madame Morrible in the original Australian production of Wicked, which opened in 2008 and toured until 2015. She's worked extensively with Australia's leading theatre companies, including the Sydney Theatre Company, the Melbourne Theatre Company, the State Theatre of South Australia and the Perth Theatre Company. Maggie is directed by Michael Blakemore in Death Trap and she shared the stage with Sir Michael Redgrave, Susanna York and Topol, among others. Her musical repertoire includes stellar turns in Irene, Anything Goes, songs from Sideshow Alley, Singing in the Rain and the West End production of Prisoner, Cell Block H, the musical. Her television credits include All Saints, Blue Healers, Water Rats and of course Joan the Freak Ferguson in Prisoner. Earlier this year Maggie released her memoir, The Gloves Are Off, The Inside Story from Prisoner to Wicked. It's a terrific read recounting a brilliant career while also chronicling our vital stage history. Maggie is a treasured guest in this special edition of Stages, episode 150. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Go on. <laughs> now, Maggie, supposing you were hungry, I could offer you a Vegemite sandwich or peanut butter on toast. What would you go for? Oh, peanut butter on toast. <laughs> Always. All my life, peanut butter. You've read the book. <laughs> I have read the book. It's a fantastic book. Now, does peanut butter conjure up any particular memories from childhood? Just... Generally, just generally childhood, um, white bread delivered by a baker in a horse and cart in a suburb called Cardiff and, uh, yes, lovely hot white fresh bread and then my sandwiches at school, yeah. Are you a crunchy or a smooth peanut butter? Oh, smooth, yes, smooth. None of that fancy stuff. So, Maggie, you recently released your autobiography, The Gloves Are Off, the inside story from Prisoner to Wicked. Is it a tough experience raking over the past, the, the loves, the losses, the, the triumphs, the troughs? It, it was a little bit of both. It was a little bit therapeutic. It was a little bit traumatic. And it was a little bit pleasant. Um, because it, it, it enabled me to go back and, um, well, I had to research a heck of a lot of it. I'd forgotten so much of it, you know, like who was in what production and when we did it and all that sort of thing. So thank heavens for Google. Um, it, it was kind of laborious. Uh, I, I had been commissioned to write 80 words, uh, yes, 80,000 words, and I got to 40,000 I thought, oh, I can't go on, I can't do it. And I was ready to chuck it in. And the publisher appointed um, a, a writer, a writer-editor who then pushed me and pushed me and got the 80,000 words out of me. Because I would say to him, oh, who wants to know that rubbish, you know? What, what, that detail isn't all that interesting. He said, you'd be surprised how many people really want to know about the behind-the-scenes dealings of, of show business, of, of the theatre and of television. So I, I felt at times I was 
putting in some fairly trite stuff. And I was also trying not to be nasty. And um, uh, so, yeah, look, it, it was a mixed bag, Peter. It, it, in some respects, as I said, it was traumatic. In other respects, it was um, a lovely trip down memory lane. Our maturity gives us a perspective and a wisdom, doesn't it, to deal with those things? Not so much of the wisdom in my part. On my part, <laughs> I don't think. Oh, I don't know. I always thought that I would be a very wise old woman. But I don't think I am. I, I, I really don't think I am. I'm not as wise as I would like to be. Oh, I don't, I don't know if any of us are. No. Nah. So you're a war baby. Um, you lost your dad. He was serving in North Africa. And, uh, That's you right. Were, you, you're above. I, I was born in the January of 1941 and he was killed in the August. So my mum was left with a bub at the age of 23, 24 at the time. And only a month or so before I was born, her mum died. So it was a heck of a time for a young woman. So it's no wonder she grew into a very strong, independent person. You know, she, she had to make her own way. And, um, yeah, she, she was rather formidable, I think, but in a nice way, you know, not, she was just, she was assertive, she, she was independent, and, um, and she was a, a damn good mum. And you had her for quite a and, while. She, she lived to a ripe age, didn't she? Oh, yeah, just... Uh, 95 or 96, I think she was, yeah. A beautiful photo in the book of four generations, you and your... Uh, oh, yes, that's lovely. ...granddaughter and great-granddaughter, yes. yeah. Yes, yes. And now there's a great-great-granddaughter. Oh, brilliant. Yes. My, my grandson, who is 30, 31, he has a, a little two-year-old. But, of course, they live in Queensland and we can't see them. So thank uh, goodness for FaceTime. You can add Zoom to that now. Oh, yes. The whole family can join in. <laughs> if only old Gran can get it right. <laughs> you must be very curious about a dad that you never got to know. How do you piece very. together the qualities of that man and traits of that man to sort of have an understanding of who he was? You see, we, Mum didn't talk about him a great deal because by the time I was perhaps curious enough, um, she'd remarried. And I think she was reluctant to talk about him with the new husband. Um, I have subsequently met his sisters before they all passed away, of course. Um, everybody I spoke to, including mum, said he, he was a bit of a wild card, but a good person, a good bloke. And I had the great pleasure of meeting a, a gentleman in Rutherglen not long before he died, who had been had gone away to war with with Jim, and he thrilled me by saying he was one of the finest men he'd ever met. So that was good enough for me. And once I did ask my mother about him, and she said. 
She was rather shocked at the question I asked her. <laughs> but she did say, yes, he was probably the love of her life. Oh, that's a beautiful so, thing to know. That's that's all you need to know, really, isn't it? You know, yeah. I, she she wondered whether he would have, or how he would have developed, because he was only twenty seven when he was killed, and he he wanted to come back and become a school teacher. He worked in the mines down there, in the silver mine in uh, Rutherglen, and um, so it it would be interesting to know how he might have turned out, you know. He, he might not have been a nice person eventually because who knows how that war might have affected him, as it did my stepfather, yeah. who, who succumbed to the most ghastly um, PTSD, but it was never known as that. Um, and he was a, a most moderate man and became this monster late in life. Quite late in life, and all oh, they they just called it um, war neurosis, and the doctor just kept giving him tranquilizers. So, but you had a good relationship with him, didn't you? When you when your mother yeah for twenty him? odd years, yeah. and then this turnabout came, and he was a monster that I didn't know. It was terrible. Yeah, you know, I I I, I pity anybody who. Had as a parent or a partner, and I pity the person suffering the severe PTSD that we see around us nowadays, it must be awful to have that in a family because that brief time of it that I experienced, and I was a married adult by then, it was awful, just terrible. And the effect it had on my mother was shocking. You grew up surrounded by a community of women, eight aunts, a grandmother and an uncle. The attention must yes. have been gen generous attention. Oh, I think I was fairly spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly for those first three years um, that we were in Rutherglen and then when uh, the war was over and we were in Newcastle and Mum had remarried, um, I, I was still, you know, the number one, but then in 1948, along came my brother, my half-brother. Um, oh, I didn't like that at all. Competition. <laughs> no, seven-year-old Margaret didn't care for that. And I said, oh, and they called him Adrian, you see. Nobody had ever heard that name back then. And I said, oh, that's a terrible sissy name. And I refused to call it. I just called him John because his second name was John. But happily, that that little boy um, has grown into the most wonderful man and really rather my big brother other than little brother because he's a really sensible one. I think he took after mum he's in that respect. I think, I think the, the madness in me might have been Jim Downs. <laughs> Your dad. <laughs> yeah, I like to think so anyway. Bit of a rebel. Did you have any proclivities as a child to be a performer? Were you encouraged by those aunts to perform and sing? Oh, oh yes, to show off. Yeah. To, you know, stand on the bar of the pub and sing Brown Slash Hat and all those wartime songs. But... Um, no, my, my very normal and happy childhood 
didn't include very much uh, in anything that sort of inspired me to perform. But as a, as a legacy ward, I, um, I attended Newcastle Legacy every Friday. And along with the physical activities, there, was, um, there were elocution lessons. And I really enjoyed those. And subsequently, when I went to high school, I reunited with the wonderful woman who'd taken those classes and then went on to do more speech and drama as opposed to How Now Brown Cow. And I think you might note in the book that I have thanked Enid Rothorn for the rounded vowels. It, which you've, you've managed to maintain, maintain all of your, your life. I know. It's a bit posh, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm often accused of not being Australian, certainly by people from overseas. But um, no, it, it has stayed with me. Um, but that's where your voice sits, so, I guess, isn't it? That's where your voice sits yeah. and it feels comfortable. I mean, and as that's we've right. said many, many times on stage, you can do yeah. American, you can do an Australian accent, an Irish yeah. accent, whatever's called yeah. for. Yes, I've had to do all of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and Australian. I've, I've played my mother many times, the working class mum. I'm, I'm very proud to portray those women, you know, like Dot in One Day of the Year, Aggie in A Hard God, uh, and, and my favourite of all time is um, Bridie in Shoehorn Sonata. And they are all women of my mother's generation and born during the First World War, growing up during the Depression. And just when life should have been getting good for them, along comes another World War. But their resilience and their stoicism I find intriguing. And I, I've always been very honoured to play those and not, not to send them up as some people do with working-class women, but I, I honour them. You've had a front row to observe those women also, haven't you? I mean, as an actor, you've got to be a great... a sponge, but a great observer. Oh, heck yeah, yeah. And, and, and in, interestingly enough, when I was little and I'd be out with my mother, she used to get very annoyed with me because A, I never stopped talking and B, I never stopped asking questions. Who's that? How do you know them? Who are they, mummy? Who, is, that, is that lady, why is that lady so fat? You know, a pregnant woman <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of a crowded tram and, and observing. And one observance, of course, that has stayed with me forever among many is being on a train with mum going back to Rutherglen or to Albury to visit and the train used to stop somewhere probably at Yass or somewhere like that and you could have a cup of tea and biscuit not in polystyrene cups but in cafe cups and a biscuit and sitting opposite was a man with no teeth and he was <laughs> dunking his biscuit <laughs> in his tea. Well, I was intrigued by this. Consequently, I still dunk my biscuits in my tea. Uh, you've got to get the timing right, don't you? 
Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> I, and I have to tell you that once, once I was playing a very blousy character in a play with Monica Morn over in Adelaide called Farewell Brisbane Ladies. And they were a pair of retired old prostitutes. And at one point, my blousy character with great cleavage was having a cup of tea with her ex-workmate on the game who had become terribly prim and proper. And I was sitting there having this cup of tea and dunking the biscuit in the tea. Well, lo and behold, a great wet lump of soggy biscuit <laughs> went right down between my breasts. And I th Monica just looked at me aghast. The audience roared laughing and I just scooped it out and put it in my mouth and finished it. <laughs> well, that was the end of all of us. Everybody corpsed all over the theatre. <laughs> so the dunking of the biscuit has to be timed perfectly. Oh, do you know the Tim Tam Slam? No. Um, no? I can never eat Tim Tams. I had to eat them constantly during um, Shoehorn Sonata and even had them imported or exported to London so that I could have proper Tim Tams when I did Shoehorn Sonata over there. And uh, no, I don't dunk. I don't dunk those sorts of biscuits. I like arrowroot biscuits and ginger nuts and things like that. <laughs> How silly. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so to pursue your, your great dream of acting, it uh, necessitates a move to the big smoke. When did you move to Sydney? Oh, 1960, yeah, 59, 60. And, and what was the city like at that time? Oh, it was terrific. Well, naturally, everybody who came into Sydney to seek their fame and fortune um, gravitated to King's Cross. And I, I had a, a wonderful time there. It was, was before the heroine and the gangsters and the really nasty people moved in. It was, yes, there was crime, you know, there were criminals, but um, it was much more colourful and bohemian. I mean, there was people like Rosaline Norton, the self-confessed witch, who in the Kashmir Coffee Lounge, her paintings of really macabre, devilish, awful, ugly things decorated the walls. And, um, and there was all these fabulous artists and, and, uh, and there was one person, a woman who was um, a strong, I, I want to say strong man, but strong woman, a, a, a woman who dressed as a man. And sometimes she was in fabulous Italian suits. Sometimes she was in leathers riding a motorcycle and she was absolutely colourful. But interestingly, in those days where drag queens were being arrested and homosexuality was illegal and all that, she couldn't wear trousers with a fly in the front because women's, women's slacks in, in those days had side zippers and things. Yeah. So yes, yes, it was all quite, quite strange, um, and and the Rex Hotel before it became very seedy and ugly was so smart and clever, and there was a, a, a courtyard out on the front where where one 
Drake, you know, people like Gordon Chater and Noel Brophy and all sorts of people were there. And, uh, and I met a lovely, lovely boy, teenage boy, called Richard Byron. Lovely gay boy and who quite admired my then long hair and said, if ever you get a cut, can I have, have it for a fall? Well, that lovely boy became Carlotta and his dreams came true. He went on to become the fabulous Carol, who is a friend of mine to this day. So that's a long time ago. Oh, that's a wonderful story that you've been mates yeah. that long. Yeah. Yeah. The Cross sounds like it was a fabulous place at that time, not like the... Uh... Yeah, well, you know, one, one didn't have any money, of course. Um, and it was all kind of beatnikish, I suppose. Um, I, I was in a boarding house full of colourful characters, as they say. And uh, there was a, a gang of wharfies lived in this boarding house. And they, um, they worked down on the Woolloomooloo wharves. And we had a communal kitchen and most nights they would come in after work, get showered and cook their dinner, clean up the kitchen and then go to the pub. And I would be there as well, getting my own meal, probably baked beans on toast, <laughs> so broke. Um, and then they'd, they'd clean up the kitchen, everything was left spotless and then they'd, they'd take me up to the pub with them. Well, it was very funny because you know, sometimes they'd get into a bit of a brawl and they'd hoist me up onto the bar and say, mind the drinks, girl, mind the drinks. And then they'd finish the fight, get me down again and, and get on with their drinking. But they were, they were real salt-of-the-earth blokes, you know. There was nothing untoward or seedy about them. They were really, well, good working-class blokes. Yeah, good mates and it made you feel safe. Yeah, and, and safe, yeah, yeah. So the industry is quite young at this point, relatively young. Um, how do you begin to launch your career? You know, you just arrive oh. in town. You know, who do you well, meet? Where do you go? Were there agents at that time? Well, no, I, I didn't know any of that. My plan was to go and further study, you know, do some sort of... And, and really it was the old independent theatre and Doris Fitton that were the only things in those days. I went to the ensemble to see a play, which was Fortune and Men's Eyes, which had Sandy Harbert, Max Cullen, and the wonderful Max Phipps in it. And I thought, oh no, I can't go. I, this is all too modern for me because I'd been doing the classics. So off I went to Doris Fitton and I was in her, I think I had two classes, two classes with her, and she said, oh, my dear, you're too advanced for this level. You'll have to go up into the next class. So John Alden was the tutor for the next class, and in that group were Donald MacDonald, Maggie Dents, and um, David Goddard. Well, I only lasted one term there, and um, John Alden took me into his Shakespeare company where I played one of the witches in Macbeth. I played a lady in waiting in Othello 
and I was a kind of an ASM coffee maker, stage sweeper when they did um, Merchant of Venice. And so that, that, was, that was good. I, I was working with all my radio heroes, you know, from the golden age of radio drama. All those wonderful people, you know, Frank Waters and Owen Weingott and Tom Farley, Muriel Steinbeck. Oh, God, I was in heaven. We like, we like going on a set today for, for young people and seeing Zac Efron or, or, or Liam Hemsworth or something, you know, an extra yeah. going on to a set. And um, so I, I got some good notices for my, my witch work. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? I played a, a witch in my very first professional production and an almost witch in my very last, which was Wicked. Madame, Madame Morrible. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they love this lovely book in. Uh, that just occurred to me. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, so one, one, I believe, was supposed to have an agent. So the only one around in those days was Gloria Payton. And, and she said, well, yes, all right, I'll represent you. Now, you've got to go and get 10 by 8s and you've got to... And I couldn't afford it, so I, I ran away, went back home to Newcastle and did a bit of psychiatric nursing. Oh, wow. <laughs> Always good for an aspiring actor. <laughs> <laughs> Great character studies there. <laughs> oh, yes, oh, yes. Were there ever any thoughts to travel to the UK, as a lot of actors were doing at that time, to forge a career? Yes, I, I had some very dear friends um, up there in Newcastle and, of course, the plan was to go to England. You know, everybody got on a P&O line and off they went. And I just never got around to it. And... Um, Subsequently, after I met and married Norman Kirkpatrick, um, we moved to Sydney and it, he encouraged me to continue. And um, I had done a little work at Newcastle New Theatre. This was in the days when it was, uh, well, it, 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 its manifesto was indeed a left-wing socialist theatre group, you know. And, um, and that pleased me, given my politics. And so when we came to Sydney, I joined up with Sydney New Theatre and really cut my teeth there, doing quite a lot of productions and, and having crits by people like Harry Kippax and um, um, Catherine Brisbane. And so that kind of launched me back into into Sydney theatre groups, in, into Sydney theatre work. So the, the new theatre movement, uh, I didn't quite realise. They had uh, little companies in, in various places around, around the country or just the state? Uh, Sydney and Melbourne and Newcastle. Right. It was in a tiny little theatre called The Dungeon in Newcastle, which was underneath the Trades Hall. And, of course, when the earthquake came in 89... Away went the, the workers' club and away went this lovely little dungeon where we used to have a jazz club sometimes and new theatre did plays there. I was about eight months pregnant when I did um, uh, The World of uh, Shalom Aleichem. <laughs> I played a goat seller of this great pregnant belly and I had to crouch down 
and and my milking a goat. Well, it was hell trying to get back up again with this big belly. But uh, I, I had I had wonderful years with New Theatre, and um, got to play some some butte roles. You know, I I did my first Irish play in Newcastle with um, the Hostage, Brenda Byrne's The Hostage, and of course in Sydney I I. I did the famous America Hurrah, which was totally controversial in terms of censorship and opened the door for a lot of um, productions to come thereafter, like Hair and Boys in the Band. America Hurrah was political, but the New South Wales um, Chief Justice or whoever was in charge of censorship uh, deemed it uh, obscene but the point of fact was that it was um, critical of America and the involvement in the Vietnam War so what did he deem obscene was it the language or was it nudity or oh there were, there were three three one-act plays but the whole tone of it was about the demise of civilization in America a little of which we're seeing now. <laughs> we just um, for a revival, isn't it? <laughs> yes, a revival from the 60s. <laughs> and, uh, but the third play was totally about destruction, but it was also obscenity in terms of um, lewd pornographic graffiti being drawn all over the set. Um, and fornication by two massive dolls with, you know, huge heads and grotesque, quite grotesque. Um, and But the, the point was that it was unfriendly to a friendly power. But that, that was not new to new theatre because during the war, or before the war, they did a Clifford Odette's play called Till the Day I Die which was about the rise of Nazism in Germany. And that was banned because it was unfriendly to a friendly power because we weren't at war yet. It was about 1938 and the rise of Nazism. Uh, but New Theatre, for the entire duration of the war, performed that play in clandestine venues and even at one point down a pit, down a mine. They just kept it going, this anti-fascist play. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have been associated with a theatre company that had the guts to um, buck the system. And there were a theatre company that attracted the eye of Asia as well, didn't they? Um, oh, yeah. Because oh, of yes. the, the communist sympathies and, uh, yeah. you know, a few, yeah. few of the actors there deemed yeah. to have Asia files, yeah. Oh, yes. I haven't, I haven't searched for mine. I think mine would be quite minuscule, but some of my friends from those days have accessed their files and I find them very amusing. I mean, they, I think they were half-wits, a lot of those men who, who did the spying, you know, because they apparently reported the most innocuous things. <laughs> Your uh, career has given you the opportunity to work with some extraordinary talents. Um, let's talk about some. So Michael Redgrave in Voyage Around My Father. Oh, yes, that was wonderful. That was just wonderful. 
he um, came out here to do Voyage Around My Father. And uh, at the time, he was quite fragile. The, the, um, the Parkinson's, which eventually killed him, um, was kind of beginning. But nevertheless, the magic was still there with him on stage. And, and he, he was always eager to be involved with the cast. You know, he just loved, even if he didn't contribute in, in the company sense, socially, he, he just enjoyed the company of actors. And um, I had the most wonderful experience in Melbourne once. We were at the comedy and, of course, he was on stage level, his dressing room, and mine was up a flight of stairs. And I came out of the bathroom one evening and there he was at my dressing room door in his, in his gown with his, what do you call those things, garters or things that men have with socks. Holdy socks and, up, uh, yeah. yeah, and he was tapping on my door. And I ran up behind him and grabbed him around the waist. I said, what are you doing lurking? And he said, oh, my dear, you used to have a wonderful laugh on such and such a line. You seem to have lost it. I think I know how you can get it back. I took his advice and I got the laugh back that night. Bingo. Wow. Yeah. Uh and that to me was a great lesson in the generosity of a true acting giant, you know, who can take the time, given his circumstances, to walk up a flight of stairs to tell another actor how to get the well-deserved laugh back. Uh, and that well, memory very, has stayed with That's very generous and he's concerned about the big picture also generous. rather than just himself. Yep, yep, yep. A great lesson and uh, I hope it's one that I've, I've tried to live by. Um, I have had young people when a production is over, you know, and everybody's saying goodbye. I have had some young people say how much, A, they enjoyed working with me and how much I'd taught them. Well, I didn't do anything, really. Um, I guess I learned from my betters. I, I learned by watching and observing and listening and taking in what people with far more experience than I had. And so I can only suggest that perhaps that is what those young people meant because I certainly didn't interfere in their performances. But I think it was also a matter of attitude too, you know. Oh, you lead by example. It's a professionalism. It's a work ethic. Yeah. One hopes, yeah. You were cast in Voyage Around My Father by the great Betty Pounder, who was casting director yes. for J.C. Williamson's. And uh, did she give you an opportunity to, for your first musical with Irene? Irene, yes. She first um, met me when I auditioned for, oh, Lord, it was a play that Robert Morley was coming out here to do, which he often did, you know, one of those English fast type There's things. a girl in my soup or something. It was something like that. Anyway, I auditioned for this role and I'd never met Pounder and nor she me. And when I'd finished, she came down to the stage. We were at the old Philip Theatre in um, Elizabeth Street and became the Rich Brook. 
remember? Yes. And she came down to the stage and she said, yeah, where have you come from? And I said, oh, Balmain. She said, no, <laughs> no. I mean, how long have you been here? Where, why haven't I seen you? And she said, I, I can't remember when I saw someone walk across a stage as well as that. And like, this is a, a choreographing person and choreographing person. And um, she said, oh, I'd love to cast you. But she, she said, I think you'd act Robert Morley off the stage. And she said, we can't have that. So the next thing was, was Irene, which was really interesting because she cast me and I didn't meet the director, Freddie Carpenter, until the first day of rehearsals. And, uh, and the, the first number that I did with the girls, Pounder started to choreograph me. And Freddie said, no, 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 no. I don't want to, I want her to walk. So that's why I don't dance in the, I, I walk around the girls. And of course, in all those fabulous Kenneth Rowell costumes. Oh, pure silk chiffon. You wouldn't get that in the theatre today. <laughs> oh, no, they were, they were wonderful times. You'd be wanting to take your costume home. Oh, I did so much. Oh. <laughs> Beautiful. Tell All those lovely Art Deco, you know, the sort of 20s, 30s type costuming. Oh, yeah. it was lovely. Gorgeous period. Mm. Tell me about the, the great Noel Ferrier who was in... Uh, oh, what a, what a love. Oh, yeah? gee. Naughty boy. A very naughty boy. <laughs> but I, 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 I admired him so much because... He was very funny, but he had only recently joined AA. And it was a brave step that he'd made. And to take on a role when, you know, the temptations that he had um, succumbed to most of his life were there and he didn't give in, not for the 18 months that we were in that show. He had champagne in his dressing room for visitors. He didn't miss a performance and he was naughty every night. He kept trying to send me up and he couldn't do it. He could not do it. He used to come on stage and pretend he was somebody, some other famous actress. Like he, he came on one night <laughs> with, with one of his eyes turned in and apparently it was Virginia Mayo, the old Hollywood actress, who had a turn <laughs> in her eye. But I didn't laugh. And then one night he was doing his very best Dame Edith Evans impersonation. Still, I didn't laugh. Went on and on and on and on. And then one night I looked at his face and I just simply burst out laughing because it was just the silliest thing. His makeup was a bit funny. Like there was a, a mark, a pencil mark near his eye that shouldn't have been there. Well, he just stood gobsmacked because um, this woman was laughing in his face in front of 2,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I have great admiration for dear Noel. <laughs> you, were, you worked a couple of times with uh, Nobel laureate Patrick White, uh, Cheery Soul and, and Ham Funeral. Oh, yeah. I imagine yes. he would have been very particular about the actors he wanted for, for his he, he always had final say, apparently. Yeah. I, I had done a radio production of Ham Funeral 
Uh, oh, but that was after I did the film with um, Jim Sharman directed, The Night the Prowler, yep. Ruth Cracknell and Kerry Walker. And um, he came on set one night, a night shoot, and I was doing a scene with old Doris Fitton and another very grand old actor whose name escapes me. And Patrick was on the set because he wanted to hear me deliver a line that he was most amused by that he had written. And the line was, I met a delightful communist once. He was a plumber. He came to blow my pipes and stayed to indoctrinate. <laughs> well, they called cut because I had to do it again because Patrick couldn't contain his guffaw sitting behind the camera. And uh, then I did um, a ham funeral again for the Sydney Theatre Company, playing the, the, one of the old bag ladies yet again. The one I'd done on radio was with Judy Farr and on stage it was with Robin Nevin. It's the two strange old ladies rattling around in garbage bins. And um, the day of the first reading, Robin was away in Adelaide and couldn't make it for the reading. Patrick was there and he gave me this funny little old ivory fan and a funny little old hat that had been worn in the very first production back in the 60s at the Melbourne Theatre Company. And um, they needed somebody to read opposite me. And I think Neil might have suggested, Neil Armfield might have suggested Patrick read opposite me. Or maybe I was cheeky enough to do so. I can't recall. However, we sat to, I said, you can only read that woman's part if you wear the hat. So he put this silly old lady's hat on and he sat there and there was this great noble laureate reading opposite me in a very stagey old person's voice, wheezing away because of his dreadful asthma, as we know. But I thought it was a magical moment and there was not a camera, a microphone in sight. It was the days before mobile phones and selfies and all that stuff. And I thought, what an extraordinary moment in my life and in the history of theatre to sit here opposite this man. It was just wonderful. Wonderful. I think that was the only, they were the only Patrick Whites that I did. Oh, no, Cheery Soul. Yeah. I did a cheery soul, which uh, was Jim Sharman's production with Robin Nevin as Miss Docker. And I played several roles in that, as we all did. And one of them, one of the late Miss, Mrs. can't remember her name, um, sat aside from all these other old women in the nursing home who were all kind of gaga. And I sat there terribly elegant and reminisced about sailing down the Nile or something. It was, you know, usual Patrick genius and kind of offbeat. <laughs> but it was great. <laughs> Lovely. I, I was very honoured to, to have done some of his work. 
because it was kind of easier than reading some of his work. Could be a challenge sometimes. Yeah, mind you, I, I've got a heap of stuff of Patrick's here, but some I've read and um, like letters that he wrote and things yeah. like that. That was, that was always good. You've worked with some extraordinary directors too. You know, you referenced Jim Sharman and uh, Freddie Carpenter, but also Michael Blakemore and, and, and John Sumner included there. What, what are you able to garner about acting by working with good directors? Well, they all have their different ways. And, you know, the ones that you've mentioned, and then along with people like Neil Armfield and John Tusker, the late John Tusker, they all have their different ways. I'm very pliable. You know, I'm, I'm putty in a director's hands. I, I'll, until it feels uncomfortable, and then I'll dig my heels in. Um, but I, I really take on board the methods that they have and the way they choose to work. Yeah, they were, they were all, all wonderful in their own way. You know, Neil Armfield, um, so, well, they were all meticulous, no doubt about that. But Neil had notes for the last performance of wow. Ham Funeral, yeah. the very last performance. <laughs> kind of idiosyncratic, but lovely, lovely. Yeah. And uh, Michael Blakemore, I, I did um, Death Trap, the IR-11 horror story, yeah. Um, I do that. John Howard was in that. It was John's first big job out of NIDA. And he was, he was like a young, he was like a puppy, a young puppy, if you can imagine John Howard nowadays, <laughs> bounding around, full of excitement, full of enthusiasm, whilst people like um, Robin Nevin and I we, you know, we were gibbering wrecks on opening night. We were all so nervous, the old hands. But John was prancing up and down the corridor and having a wonderful time. Um, I didn't have a lot to do with Michael Blakemore. He, he too was pleasant and I enjoyed, A, his company and B, his direction. Jim Sharman I adore. Jim so quiet and lovely. But... What I love about them all is their decisiveness. And John Tasker, I think I did about seven plays with John. And um, oh, we we had some we had some times together, he and I. You know, I had to dig my heels in a few times with him, but he got the best work out of me. You know, I, I just I just loved it, and I, I enjoyed our battles too. Because they were done with such love, you know. And, and it's, uh, it's a collab collaboration in creating the production, isn't it? You, you that's, that's what I love about it. Give yes. and take. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And sadly, I've only worked once with um, Simon Phillips. Just the once when I did um, A Delicate Balance. And uh, I, I dearly would have loved to have worked more with him. Him because he was another eccentric but totally committed, concise, decisive director. You know, he knew what he wanted and he knew how to get it out of you. And I, I really admired that. And I, I don't think 
Certainly not in the theatre. I can't recall any director that I've disliked, loathed or disrespected. At this moment, I can't think of any. (laughs) (laughs) And that's true. Yeah. Is it dispiriting then as an actor when you're cast in one of those big franchises, and I mean that very respectfully because Wicked was a wonderful production, where the American creatives come in and, Mm. well, Madame Morrible, she starts here, she has to move there. How do you Mm. find your motivation and your inspiration to, to bring life to that character when you're so restrained with with what the production is. Yes. Well... Did you enjoy that process? There wasn't much of a process, um, except, as you say, stand here, move there, say this, climb up those stairs, exit there. Um, Any depth that one wanted or relationships with other other characters that just kind of came along with the collaboration with the other actors, I found. Initially it was all pretty superficial, but I had a case in point of my relationship, for instance, with the girls, how to deal with Elphaba or, or uh, Glinda. That, that was fine because of what those two, in the main, the, the initial girls playing them, Amanda and Lucy. Um, With the wizard, that differed with each person playing the role. Um, I sadly wasn't with Rob Guest for any more than about three months to develop a real rapport in terms of the two characters, certainly a rapport as friends. We had that, and I was so looking forward to that developing as colleagues, um, sadly taken away from us. But you had about four um, wizards, I think, didn't you? Oh, they came and went, yes. Does does that test you as an actor? You you constantly have to um, recalibrate your own performance. I, I had to change my own each time. I have now, of course, gone into print about Bert and with no disrespect, he's a bigger-than-life personality and I just don't think that his personality grasped the nuances of The Wizard. When Reg Livermore came into it, it, it was bliss. You know, I was working with someone whom I really admired and who had a really interesting take on The Wizard. He was sort of like a, almost like a Joel Grey conniving, you know how Joel Grey was in Cabaret? Well, that's how I felt that, that Reg gave me that kind of Machiavellian, light footed type uh, baddie. And then, the last one was Simon Gallagher, who came in as this beautiful, avuncular, warm per- So it changed me again. And I found that wonderful and challenging. You know, each, with each wizard, it kept, it kept me from being bored, having yeah. these changes all the time. So, that, you know, I mean, it was, it was wonderful. After, you know, I did over 1,600 performances. 
and uh, you know you've got to work hard to keep it fresh. Good stuff. Yeah, keeps you fresh, and I guess you can find new detail within the character as well when you're constantly. Yeah, yeah, I did, I did, and that's 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 what, as I said, stopped me from being bored and made it fresh for me all the time. You know. You had some fabulous costumes. How important is a costume to you in creating character? Oh, I think costumes are extremely important. Um, shoes are important. The late Gloria Dawn always started with her feet, apparently. I never got the chance to work with the wonderful woman, but she always knew what she was doing. A lot of actors are like that. You know, if they've got the feet right, the rest will follow. And... Uh, I, I, I don't know that I have any kind of favourite way of dealing with a costume. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the costumes that I had for Wicked were extraordinary and caused me a great deal of pain because they were so heavy. Right, yeah. And unwieldy. Oh. <laughs> you just wonder sometimes. It was all about money, I think, you know, they just spent so much money on it when wardrobe people know how to create the illusions without the, the actor having discomfort. Yeah, I was nearly crippled with the damn things, but I know they look wonderful. Yeah, it's and very I suppose, opulent. I suppose that's all that matters. <laughs> It looks, as Betty Poundley used to say, it'll be lovely when it's lit. <laughs> You've notched up quite a few musicals. Irene, Anything Goes, Singing in the Rain, Fiddler on the Roof with Topole and Wicked, of course. Do, do you enjoy the big machine of a commercial musical? Yes, I do. I do, actually, yeah. Um, as much as I enjoy the intimacy of a small play, a two-hander, say. I, I love the razzmatazz of the big musical. I mean, who could not? It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's exciting. And, uh, and, and I'm always in awe, and particularly in Wicked, I was in absolute awe of the cast. Um, you know, once upon a time they were called chorus boys and girls. Now they are the most extraordinary ensemble of triple threats that you're likely to find. And the young people that I was working with in Wicked, oh God, they're, they're acting, they're singing, they're dancing, all triple threats. And they could step into any role that they were covering at a, at a minute's notice. And they did. Is there a musical that you would like to have done or...? do at some point? Oh, I'd have loved to have played um, Vera Charles. Love to have done that. I, I wouldn't mind even now. I, I could probably do it because she's in a chair. It's, it's Madame Armfeld, isn't it, in uh, Little Night Music? Little Night Music, of course, yes. With that lovely song, Liaison. I could do that. Yes. <laughs> I think she says boldly. Do you enjoy playing Boo roles, the villain? Oh, yes. Yes. Of course. I've, <laughs> I've played an awful lot of villains. I, well, not you know, sort of... I would just simply like one day to play a vulnerable person. 
Well, the probably the most famous villain which you're, you're known for, of course, is Joan Ferguson in in yeah. Prisoner. How did that come about? Oh, I auditioned for for it when it first began and didn't get in, and then years later, a, a friend called Ian Bradley was back producing it. He'd had a break away from it and had created a character because Fiona Spence had gone as the resident nasty prison officer. And um, they created this character. And through a mutual friend from Ian, I learned that he had said, I've got this new character in Prisoner, a sadistic, corrupt, bulldog screw. <laughs> and I think Maggie should play. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to my darling late Bill Shanahan and said, Bill, I think you're going to get a call from Grundy's. He said, what for? And I told him, he said, oh, my God, what next? And so there we were, four and a half years. In, in the theatre, you all arrive at rehearsal on the first day and you build the show together. With an established TV show like that, is it daunting mm. walking into the set where relationships oh, are already hell. there? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's absolute hell. Um, and, and I was so terrified because I wasn't all that experienced with camera work. And um, so my first scene that I shot, I think, was actually in the laundry. So I was confronted by all these regular main characters plus a group of extras of the, the dailies and um, that stillness and menace that came from me in that scene um, was born out of nerves. I was terrified, wow. terrified. A happy accident. And yeah, yeah. And it served me well. Um, as the months went by or the years, uh, I, I obviously got a little bit cocky about my, my confidence in the role and started to act tough, you know, with the swaggery persona. And the director who had directed my first episode was back sometime later doing a, a, a bit of a fill-in, you know, doing a couple of blocks. And he said, Maggie, you've lost that stillness, that menace, the stillness. He said, um, get it back. He said, you, you, you know, it, it's, it's looking false now. So from then on, I told every director who came in <laughs> to tell me if I started wagging the head and swaggering and whatever. And every now and again, a, a voice would come down from the control room saying, Maggie, head, head, <laughs> oh, sorry. And back would come the stillness. Because, it's, of course, it's a much more intimate medium, isn't it? And um, oh, yeah, raising an eyebrow yeah. sort of stands yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was good. I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from the crew particularly. And I'm forever grateful to those Channel 10 crew who, who gave me all that, all that help. More than the directors, you know. I mean, the directors tell you to move here and there or they talk to you about the, the, the ramifications of a scene and the physical thing of it. 
but just that whole other technical thing of 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 sound and of um, of camera. Um, they they taught me you know, a little hand would sneak out from behind behind a camera and just kind of indicate for me to move slightly to the left or slightly to the right or so you know just things like that tiny little things and and about sound and no i'm i'm eternally grateful to those people were you excited or perhaps surprised by the prospect of the show becoming a stage musical <laughs> with cell <Blanc? laughs> I was horrified. <laughs> did, you, did you think it could possibly work? Oh. How was it sold to you? Well, because it was um, Paul O'Grady, you know, who at that time was riding high with his um, persona, Lily Savage, and his management wanted him and he wanted to do a West End show. And he had something lined up and it, it fell through. And they said, well, what, what else do you want to do? And he said, in his very thick Liverpool accent, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd love to do a musical based on Prisoner because he was an avid watcher. Funnily enough, it had been mooted for some years. And uh, lo and behold, Mike Walsh and uh, the late Helen Montague took it on. He, Paul O'Grady, um, insisted that they write in my character as, um, you know, a protagonist for him um, and, and that I, the actress, play it. So that's how I came to be there. I eventually described it as adult panto. Right, yeah. Because anyway, you know what the Brits are like with their panto? Yeah. He's behind. You, oh, yes, he is, you know, all that. Well, that's almost how it became. There'd be asides happening, there was such improvisation that we, we just kind of took it over. It was sheer madness for three months on the West End. So I'm, I'm grateful that I eventually did get to the West End and it wasn't Shakespeare, but nevertheless, I was there, as they say, and two national tours. So I got to see the United Kingdom twice. Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And it was a load of fun. Did you sing much? Oh, I think I did. Yeah, yeah, I think I had this ridiculous rock and roll sort of number about my gloves or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, truly, I'd forgotten. <laughs> Maggie, you appear in two of my favourite Australian films, in The Pirate Movie and Welcome to Whoop Whoop. Oh, good Lord. Oh. Aren't they, I mean, they have a cult following. They're, they're, I think they're Apparently. a lot of fun. Yeah, they're, they're campy fun. They're, 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 they're good work. Would you have liked to have done more film? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would have. I mean, I, I've had, I had a nice little part way, way back when in The Getting of Wisdom. I don't think I've done much film at all, really. A few little itty-bitty bits, you know, nothing of any consequence. But those two, they're just so silly, aren't they? Oh, yeah. The pirate yeah. movie and Welcome to Whoop. I mean, what? I don't know what Stefan Elliott was thinking with Welcome to Whoop Whoop. Or indeed, what 
the Goldwyn mob in Hollywood were thinking about filming it. It was crazy, absolutely. But I met some wonderful people and had a fabulous time. Well, you work with that great Australian actor, Rod Taylor, who made oh, his career in Rod Hollywood. Rod Taylor, yes, yes. God love him. Another one gone. Yeah. Gee, he was a nice man and a naughty boy, you know. Goodness me. Could he knock back the VB? <laughs> Good to hear. Good to well, hear. We, were, we were in Alice Springs and it was very hot. Yes. So one can't blame them for enjoying the uh, odd ale. Quench I joined them myself. Do you, prefer, <laughs> do you prefer stage or screen? Oh, I think stage. I think stage because, look, Peter, there's no safety net. The excitement is, is better and the control is in one's hands, you know, and... It's got to be right. It's got to be fresh. It's, it's with film and television, you're in the hands of other people, in the hands of editors, of cameras, of, you know, they, they can make or break your performance, especially an editor. No, I, I think in the immediacy of an audience, you know, if you, it's all very well to do something funny on screen that, 12 months later, somebody in a cinema somewhere might laugh at, but it's much more satisfying to do something funny on stage and hear that lovely wave of a, a warm laugh or, in some cases, to hear the odd sniffle as you've affected somebody emotionally. You know, no, definitely theatre. Although nowadays I don't think I, don't think I could sustain eight shows a week I certainly couldn't do one of those musicals again. Yeah. Nah. If there was a role for somebody in a chair, <laughs> I, I might think about it, like Madame Armfeld. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, talking of the, the, the panto style of uh, Cell Block H, you appeared in a similar sort of entertainment uh, in a drag show. Cinderella at Kinsella. Oh, Lord, yes. That was such a long time ago. And you got um, to work with Carlotta. Yes, yes. We played the Ugly Sisters in Cinderella and um, the famous David Williams, Beatrice, who had been a great star at the Purple Onion, I think it was called, down Kingsford Way, Kensington Way. And um, Ronnie Arnold was the wicked stepmother. Lynn Lovett was... I can't remember the name of the young boy who played the prince. But it was very funny because my friend David Mitchell and David Penfold used to write shows and people would... Um, actors would record the voices for the drag artists to mime. And on this particular occasion, Geraldine, I wasn't available to, to record the voices, and Geraldine Turner recorded the voice of one of the uglies. And the drag queen who was playing it had some sort of a breakdown or hissy fit and stormed off. Well, they were stuck, and I think they only had about two weeks before they opened. 
<laughs> David Mitchell said to me, will you do it? And I said, oh, all right, all right. <laughs> so off I went to this, do this drag show with most elaborate costumes, rehearsed like mad. Ronnie gave me some choreography and da -da -da -da, got it all going. And then opening night came and Carlotta and I came bounding on and out boomed Geraldine Turner's voice <laughs> and somebody else's for, for Carlotta. And I, I was kind of dumbstruck and I put a great dig in the ribs from Carlotta. She said, mime, you stupid bitch, mime. <laughs> well, I wasn't used to other people's voices coming out of my mouth. And it was very funny. We had a fun time. Dear me. <laughs> Sharing a dressing room with those, that lot. Oh, God. It was great fun. The mid-80s into the 90s, of course, we experienced the impact of a virus of a different kind with HIV yes. and AIDS. And we lost many friends and great artists and you were at the forefront of a lot of fundraising and, and, and raising awareness of... of uh, that, yeah, well, you time. see, it, it, it started in Melbourne when I was still doing Prisoner and um, a couple of crew members, um, I think one was a, one of the makeup artists and the other one might have been a hairdresser or something, they're taking a lot of time off work with the flu and uh, maybe it's glandular fever you know you've been kissing the wrong people boys you know and then it became evident that and that there more and more people got sick and I'm not I think that the fundraising effort came through my my profile as Joan Ferguson, which had a gay following anyway, and through the late Dawn O'Donnell, who was very much at the forefront of fundraising and smart operator, our Dawny, and she said, maybe I could help with the fundraiser. So I used to go to her various pubs and stuff and do draw raffles and shriek along with the drag queens and all that sort of thing. And then it became <clears throat> more and more and more and more and I found myself working for the AIDS Trust at one point um, when they instigated a Saturday morning shopping, celebrity shopping thing in the city in David Jones and Meyer and things like that, where celebrities and sports people and politicians would come and serve people behind the counter. So I helped organise that. Then I, I did some work for the Bobby Goldsmith Foundation and started, um, what was it called, Shop Till You Drop which was all of Oxford Street and that Darlinghurst area, right up through Oxford Street and Paddington. Um, and I trudged that street, getting shop owners to contribute a, a small percentage on that day, on, on the Saturday of Shop Till You Drop. And um, so there were concerts in pubs and the drag queens and 
and all sorts of activity all along Oxford Street. And it was, it was like a big Mardi Gras. And, and then I had some involvement with Mardi Gras, with um, uh, judging the costumes and all sorts of, and, and collecting money mainly was the, the purpose. And um, I found it really interesting that the first time I, I was in the Mardi Gras parade in the lead truck with an old drag queen looking like the Queen Mother sitting on a throne with me at the front with a microphone telling people to put money into buckets that were being carted along Oxford Street by volunteers. And every now and again in the truck, the driver would slam the brakes on and the, the old Queen Mother and I would nearly go tumbling off the, off the wretched uh, off the truck. But I did that a couple of times, um, yes, as more and more friends left us. They were terrible times. A terrible. great mate of yours that, that we lost, who was a, one of the country's greatest actors, in my, my opinion, was John Hargraves. And yeah. through these conversations, we can, we can have a bit of a six degrees of separation. And tell me what John was like. Was, uh, he was obviously a great actor. Oh, uh, what was he like? Gee, hard to describe, funny, hysterically funny, um, smart, savvy, risk taker, all of that. And it was so sad to see all that compassion go and be replaced by anger when he was ill. It was heartbreaking, you know, this giant of a man, metaphorically speaking, who became so embittered and frightened. And yet, you know, there were friends who met their, their fate with great grace and dignity. John raged, raged all the time at the world and at, at us, at the people close to him. But of course, you know, one, one forgives that. You don't know how you'd be yourself in a similar situation. But, um, oh, boy, has he missed. Imagine what he could have oh. achieved, what was left in that career. Oh, my dear, I, I constantly see roles that I think, oh, God, that was, would have been so, John. There are some young actors now who have that same recklessness in their performance that he does. That lovely young man, Ryan Kaur, is yes. one that I, whose work I admire. He's got, there are young actors with an element of what John had. And with no disrespect to Richard Roxburgh, I could see John playing Rake yeah. in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, at, at, at the core is that larrikinism. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It, it is that. And, you know, the other week I, I watched Carefully Might Hear You, which I hadn't seen for an awfully long time, and I'd forgotten, A, how beautiful that film is. It's an absolute feast for the eyes. But John's first entrance in that reduced me to tears because what he did was he threw his head back and did that, ah! 
that laugh that he did. He does it at the end of the film Cry Freedom. He used to throw his head back and just, ah, to the world, you know. Big spirit, a big spirit there. Yeah. I think it's telling how big your heart is also, because I understand after performances of, in London of Cell Block H, you used to visit AIDS wards and hospitals to spend some time with patients. In London? Yeah. In London, yes, 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 yes I did. Um, that was interesting. I, I was first taken to Lighthouse when I arrived there, and then when I was actually performing um, down at the... Uh, the Queen's Theatre on, on um, Shaftesbury Avenue, um, some nurses from the AIDS ward at the, oh, what's, it's the Middlesex Hospital, was up the road, um, sent a note and asked if I would draw their Christmas raffle in the ward. <clears throat> and I'm very happy to comply with that. And so through that, I, I became friends with these wonderful nurses. And often I would just go up after the show had ended and have cups of tea with them and perhaps sit with people who didn't, some of the men who didn't have any visitors. The least one can do, I guess. Maggie, tell me, do you read reviews when you're performing? Um, yeah, yes and no. I'm happy to say I've never had a bad review. Really? I've been ignored that. Oh, okay, <laughs> yes. Which is fine, which is yeah, fine. Yeah. I might have even had a major part in the play and I've been ignored, so obviously that, that particular critic didn't like my performance because they chose to ignore me. So, I don't know. But that, I do read them, yes. Do you, do you enjoy touring when, when you were touring? I've the... always enjoyed it. Yes, I've always enjoyed touring. Um, and with Wicked, my goodness. I mean, touring has, has given me a chance to see not only all of Australia, but um, Singapore, Hong Kong, Manila, New Zealand, and the UK. And that's doing my job. So what's not to like about it, you know? And, and other tourings that I've done on a smaller scale, say, for instance, travelling around country New South Wales or country Victoria, that's always fun. I love those country towns. And, um, and the last one I did, of course, was back with um, Belinda Giblin when we did um, Sean Sonata. Well, that was a hoot. We drove, or she, Belinda drove, the old lead foot. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, we, we, it was wonderful. We had a lovely time. Do you get to the theatre early? Oh, yeah. What's your routine once you arrive at the theatre? Oh, golly. Probably get into my dressing gown, listen to a bit of music, depending on the show, you know. Yeah. Um, if it's a musical, then... Well, with Wicked, it had to be a good hour. These, these days, it is an hour before curtain. Once upon a time, it was the half-hour call, which is why I'm always early for engagements, I think. A lifetime of the half-hour call. 
<laughs> I'm usually half an hour or 15 minutes earlier than I should be. Oh, I might listen to some music. I might do a crossword puzzle. I might look at a script. Not, just, you know, have a cup of tea and... Focus. Just get ready. Yourself. Just yeah. get ready and focus, yeah, and have a bit of a think. Do you have a process for, learning, process for learning lines? Oh, God. Heartache. <laughs> Heartache and heartburn. <laughs> oh, no, it's the bane of my existence. But usually when they're there, they're there, and they stay. I almost need surgery to have the script taken out of my hand even though I might not be looking at it in rehearsal. It's got to be there. And, and I have a funny feeling about that, and it's not my own lack of confidence in the lines, it's that I don't want to stuff anybody else up. Yeah, yeah, okay. So if I'm unsure, I don't want to stop their flow, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So... As I said, I practically need hand surgery to remove it, to remove, remove the script. It's the actor's lot to handle, uh, encounter a lot of rejection in a career. Do you have any advice for young actors about how to handle that, uh, you know, the, the constant nose or it didn't go your way this time? Oh, just have a good cry and get over it. <laughs> It'll go on forever, for as long as you're in the business. It's an occupational hazard. Of course it is. Do you get nervous? Yep. And I'm not particularly fond of opening nights. I, I like it better once it's sitting more comfortably because the, the, the rehearsal process and then that production week is so fraught with tension leading up to that big tension of, of an opening night, or nowadays, especially in the big musicals, that first preview, it's as important as an opening night. And I always think as, as one relaxes into the run, I think, gee, why couldn't it have been like this on opening night? You know, because there's all that adrenaline and, and you Minds going a thousand miles an hour, and no matter no matter how prepared, it's still it's still governed by adrenaline, and sometimes that's a very good thing. What makes you happy, Maggie? Chatting to nice people like you. <laughs> You'll go places. <laughs> oh, what makes me happy? Oh, golly. A sunny day, an early morning swim. Oh, so you you, you keep fit? You sort of no, keep up no, swimming no, no, no. The thought of a morning I swim. I, I, it's through the summer. I'm I'm down there at seven o'clock in the morning, but that's about the only exercise I do. <sighs> it's it's just awful being retired and old, and I can't be. I'm, I'm not a fit person, like physically. I, I wish, had I known I was going to live this long, taken greater care of myself. You've had a life of uh, 
well, I guess you could almost say shift work where, you know, you're out performing during the evenings. Are yeah. you able to now recalibrate that and get up early or do you still sleep in or you have I've always nights? been a fairly I've always been a fairly early riser. Right. And now with the insomnia of an old woman, I'm I'm awake even earlier. Well, I, I can recommend a good book that you should read. It's called The Gloves no. Are Off. Maggie Kirkpatrick, it, it's an absolutely wonderful read, Maggie, and I, I'm so glad that uh, you have done it because not only does it um, chronicle a, a really interesting life, but also it's an important historical document about our oh, performing thank- arts career. Thank you, Peter. It's, it's lovely to get that sort of feedback. And, and people can get it from all good booksellers, as they say. Oh, I don't know. Do they? <laughs> I've never seen it. I've well, never I got seen it, from, it in a bookshop. I got it from um, the bookshop in Darlinghurst. Lovely Liz McDonald oh, down okay. there. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Liz. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Those, those, and, those boys were wonderful. They launched it. Oh, great. Last, great. last September. Yeah. Well, I'm sure listeners, if they Google it, they, they will be able to put their hands on a copy somewhere. And um, I oh, I'm sure. recommend it. Yeah. Yes, everything's online these days. You don't, you don't really have the pleasure of going into bookstores anymore. Maggie, this has been episode 150 of the Stages podcast, and I'm absolutely thrilled that you could be the special guest in this episode. So it's thank been you for lovely, Peter. Thank you. All the best. Keep well and keep safe. And you too, my dear. Bye-bye. Isn't she a great lady? Maggie Kirkpatrick, generous, genuine, and a great raconteur. I cannot recommend her memoir enough. The Gloves Are Off, the inside story from Prisoner to Wicked. It's a super read for anyone who is a fan of the theatre, a student of the theatre, or if you're just a fan of biography. I got my copy at the bookshop in Darlinghurst, if you're in Sydney. If you're further afield, I know you can order online from the bookshop and, of course, wherever good books are sold. Next week, for something different, a role that has always fascinated me is the craft of the DJ the puppeteer, if you like, of a vast crowd on the dance floor. And joining me from his home in Miami is DJ Dan Slater. Dan is an Australian who commenced his career as a dancer in musicals, which included Mamma Mia, We Will Rock You, Shout and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. He is now a much in-demand DJ on the international party circuit. It's a fascinating conversation and he is as charming as ever. That's next week on Stages. As always, I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.